0: All right, well, this morning we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, beginning in verse 41 and going over into chapter 21, verse 4. Luke, chapter 20, verses 41 through chapter 21, verse 4. And you can find our passage on page 880 in the Pew Bible. Be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, for, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So uh, way back in Luke chapter 9... Um, Jesus, we noted, turned his face toward Jerusalem. And, all, and, and everything that proceeded after, at, at that point was to be understood in light of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. i got like an eyelash or something going on here. All right. um, and, so, and, and so we know that Jesus is now in Jerusalem. And as we cross into chapter 21 today, we should note that at the beginning of chapter 22, the religious leaders will begin to execute their designs to kill Jesus. This means we ought to pay careful attention to what Luke includes leading up to that moment. Now this text might be considered to be a mishmash of of several different topics. But it really falls along the lines of two familiar questions. Who is the Messiah and what is the nature of true religion? Who is the Messiah and what is the nature of true religion? And there is certainly no shortage of people today who are confused as to the person and the nature of the Messiah as also what real religion looks like. In our day, religion is even considered a, a bad word, a, a word that gen- tends to mean kind of stuffy, dead rituals, boring. But that is not what true religion is. When the, if you go read the theologians from, from centuries ago, they'll talk about the pure religion, the, good, the, the true religion, and they don't mean stuffy, dead rituals, In addressing these issues, Jesus presents uh, two things for us uh, that we're going to call first a profound paradox and then a clarifying contrast. So he addresses the issue of the Messiah by, by presenting a profound paradox in verses 41 through 44. And the question that Jesus asks is a very real question. Jesus puts a question to the religious leaders and scholars from Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say, the Lord said to my Lord. It says, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And, but in the reading of the synagogue, they avoid saying the divine name, and they would replace it with Adonai. And so Jesus is technically quoting the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which which also would have been read in the synagogue. But if you were in the synagogue, you would have heard uh, the uh, Adonai said to my Adonai. It almost sounds redundant and confusing, but it actually is pretty accurately reflected in our English translation there. But the text itself is a royal psalm that is understood to be speaking of, about the Messiah, who would be a descendant of David. You know, uh, in now, in the ancient world, a descendant was never greater than the one they descended from. So think about Abraham, right? If, if you were to say, I'm greater than Abraham, the, the, you know, the Jewish people would be like, what? You're, you're insane. They would be angry and upset, right? Or Moses or David. Right? So, so Jesus puts a question to them and says, well, that being the case, how can David... Call his descendant his lord. Now, Jesus here is not trying to disprove the scriptures. It was common for Jewish rabbis to put forward a seeming, a, a difficult question, even an apparent, and it's a, the key word, apparent contradiction, which is not really a contradiction, but an apparent contradiction, uh, uh, before their audience through a question to get for instruction. For them to start thinking on, for them to start chewing on. And so they would put that question out there and get the people to think about it and to harmonize what seems to be in apparent conflict. Now in our modern times, there are many unbelieving and Jewish scholars who have tried to argue that Psalm 110 verse 1 is not talking about a Messiah, but it's referencing Abraham or a different Messiah that is yet to come. Uh, they also Now, especially liberal scholars will go on and say, and David, hey, did even though it says a psalm of David, David didn't write it, all right? The liberal scholarship loves to say that things that were written by people weren't written by people. And uh, it was written by some nameless person or a group of people, a group of editors, uh, uh, you know, redactors uh, many, many years later. And, uh, but Jesus, for his part, affirms David's authorship, And confirms that we are indeed to see that the Messiah is being spoken of in this text. And I don't know about you, but Jesus is my chief interpreter of the Bible. In fact, Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most cited Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. It is the one one Old Testament text that is repeatedly cited in the New Testament. The implication of Jesus' quotation here would be that if David is going to refer to one of his own descendants as, as Lord, then that indicates that his descendant is going to be greater than himself. That the Messiah must be greater than the one who came before. And that means he has to be greater than merely an earthly royal descendant of David. Any king... Coming from David's line would not be enough for David to call him Lord. He must be something more. And the more is the mystery that Jesus presents to his audience. It is shocking and not shocking, I guess, when we consider that there are entire disciplines in liberal theological institutions that are dedicated to the idea that Jesus is not the Messiah that the Word of God says He is, and that the Christian church has believed Him to be for two millennia. But Jesus is clearly what the, the, what the Old Testament promises, the Messiah who will be greater than David because David calls Him Lord. Well, how can that be? Well, Jesus puts the question forward. Jesus asks the question, and we're in church, and that means Jesus is the answer. Later on in this Gospel, after His resurrection, Jesus is going to tell several of His disciples that along the Emmaus Road, that all of the Old Testament talks about Him, is about Him, is pointing to Him. The Anglican Bishop, J.C. Ryle, he put it this way, the book of Psalms is a book full of Christ. The Book of Psalms is a book full of Christ, Christ suffering, Christ's humiliation, Christ dying, Christ rising again, Christ coming for the second time, and Christ reigning over all. I mean, if we recall, that's, that's why the, 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 the Psalms was the, the, the Christian hymnal for roughly 1,500 years in the church. And in Psalm 110. Uh, we observe the enthronement of the Messiah. The Messiah is greater than David in every conceivable way. We know the Messiah is greater in his birth as he was born of a virgin, as the prophet said, being God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the king that Isaiah prophesied of, who has the government on his shoulders, sired as the prince of peace. Further, He is not a sinner like David, falling into adultery and murder. This King, this Messiah, is pure, righteous, holy, and devout to an absolute degree. And for this Messiah, Jesus, to approach His enthronement, it, uh, it means, it assumes that He will conquer death and sin on the cross, and the tomb and in the tomb by his resurrection and seal it all up in his ascension. the final consummation of Psalm 110 verse 1 will come in Christ's return because there, finally and ultimately and forever will the enemies of God be made his footstool. will he put his fo- foot? On the throat of his enemies. He will bring, come and bring full deliverance for his own. Full restoration, glory, resurrection for his people. And he will bring full and final judgment for his enemies. And, to, and so Jesus confirms for something that we definitely truly believe. That we would confess that Jesus is greater than David. David. We need to take Jesus' invitation today to ponder his work as our Messiah and our Redeemer. And not pass by too quickly because we're committed Christians and we confess Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. And go like, okay, yeah, he's the son of David, let's move on. Tell me something I don't know. But to, to stand back and be like, okay, but what does that mean for him to be the Messiah that Psalm 110 speaks of? The Westminster Shorter Catechism breaks the work of the office of Messiah as the Redeemer into three. His office as prophet, as, he, as the one who speaks and proclaims the, the, the word of God to us and calls us effectually unto himself in repentance and faith. His office is priest where He gives Himself up once for all for His people as the perfect sacrifice for our sin and sealing to us the benefits of redemption by His blood. His office is king where He rules over us now, where He governs all things in order to bring His people ultimately, His church, His bride, into eternal glory in the kingdom of God. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. Christians, take heart this morning in your Redeemer. He is reigning over us now, and He will not let the devil, He will not let the world, He will not let your own flesh frustrate His plans he will not let those things conquer you or conquer his divine plan of redemption for you. Rather, as Paul says, we are more than conquerors of all these things in Christ. The one who loved us, the one who gave himself up for us, that's our security. That's our confidence. That's our assurance. That's our glory. Not not even that. He is our confidence and our glory and our assurance. If Christ did that for us, and if God the Father gave His Son in that way for us, if the Holy Spirit empowered Him to accomplish that work on our behalf and now that Spirit lives in His people, sealing and applying the benefits of grace to His people, how will He not give you everything that He has promised? We have more in the promises of the gospel than our circumstances give us cause to believe in. Right? When we look at ourselves, when we look around at our country we look around at our life things might be going all right things might be going pretty good things might be terrible but never do they say kingdom glory redemption eternal life and, and the fullness of of existence in a way that you can never imagine that's what awaits you based upon the circumstances as you look around right if someone gets that simply by looking around they're delusional But how do we know we have them? Because we don't look around, we look up. We look to Christ. We look to Him. And in Him we have it. Because He is the one seated on the throne until all His enemies are made His footstool. Will Christ lose you? Will Christ fail you? We will fail Him. But He will not fail us. Are we strong enough to break his promises or his will to deliver us? Are we strong enough to break the love of God for us? Can any one of your sins undo the cross of Jesus Christ? And say, well, well, it's effective for everything else, but but, but not for that. No. But sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes we are convinced of that. And we despair. Be encouraged, Christian, for the question that Jesus asks is answered. David calls Jesus his Lord. And Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And God the Father is at work in the process of making all his enemies his footstool. And so we have this profound paradox about the Messiah, that finds its solution in Jesus. And then we have a clarifying contrast that takes us from chapter 20, verse 45, into chapter 21, verse 4. It's in its contrast that Jesus presents between the scribes and the widow. And in the scribes, Jesus warns us against having an external religion, an external religiosity, Jesus lays into the scribes, who are essentially the scholars of the Jewish people. He says to watch out for them, because they are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. They love walking around in their fancy clothes that let everybody know who they are. They love receiving the fawning greetings in the marketplace. So, oh scribe, oh so nice to see you all. Right? Uh, they love going, they, they love going and, and getting the special seats in, in, when they go to church on Saturday at the synagogue. Uh, they like getting the special seats when they go to the public feast and everyone can see them at the special table. They like to take advantage of widows to enrich themselves either by going to them and teaching and seeking large sums of money for them from them for their teaching or by offering to manage their estate and embezzling a little bit on the side for themselves. And even worse, they pray long, boring prayers. Not really the length that Jesus is getting upset about. It's the pretense. It's why they do it. They pray long, boring, public prayers to show people how much Scripture they know, to show people how holy they are. They do it so they can make people think that they are good Jesus engages here essentially in His prophetic office, declaring that their condemnation will be greater, particularly because they violate the third commandment. In the name of the Lord, they bring devastation to people that need protection and care. They use His name and they drag it through the mud to enrich themselves. These are the men that Paul spoke of. In 1 Timothy 6, who imagine godliness is a way, a good way, to make money. These are the men who put forth a show of godliness, a pretense of godliness, but deny its power and don't have the real thing. Paul says, avoid them. Distance yourself from them. Don't even engage with them. And so the warning Jesus issues here about the scribes is twofold. There's two aspects to it. One, he says, Watch out for scribes and men like the scribes so that you will not be taken advantage of by them, that you yourself will not be harmed by them. And indeed, many people in the Christian church have been harmed by pastors like this. Do not be given to trusting in appearances. Watch out. Though, because the the warning is not just to watch out to avoid scribes. Watch out that you don't become scribes yourselves. Don't become like them, especially leaders in the church. Watch out that we do not become as those who only want to make a show of religion without having it in the heart. And I will tell you that as a minister, I feel that that temptation keenly. The temptation to make people think that I'm better than I am. That I'm more disciplined than I am. That I'm more righteous than I am. That I pray more than I do. That I'm more godly than I am. And to be frank with you, I tremble before the living God. God before whom I will have to give an account, not only as a father and a husband and as a man, but as a pastor, as a shepherd of the sheep. What will he say of my ministry? What will he say to me? Will he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he chastise me for becoming the embodiment of the scribes? a haunting question for me but I think it's a good one and it's one especially ministers should not forget but it's one that we all should be careful to remember I say this because we need to watch out for false teachers because they do so much damage in the church there's so much damage that has been done to the church today there's documentaries and there's all kinds of stuff coming out now some of it's overblown some of it's making mountains out of molehills but some of it's not and there has been real harm done to real people. The advantage taken of, of real of people who trusted their pastor, who trusted their teachers, who trusted this person, who trusted this Christian because they said they followed the Lord. And they were hurt and wounded and they're angry and they're bitter and they're resentful and they hate the church and they hate God for it. And Jesus, and no wonder Jesus has the harshest language to give to the Pharisees and scribes and the hypocritical leaders in the church. And so we see this all brought out as Jesus contrasts the scribes who would seem to have everything. and He contrasts them with a poor widow who has nothing. And in her example... Jesus commends us to lean upon God. That true religion is effectively leaning upon God for everything. Jesus looked up from the scribes and he saw the rich putting their gifts in with the which were significant sums of money. Um, but then he observed a, a poor widow uh, who, who put in two copper coins, which is uh, their two is called lepta called leptin, singular, lepta, two lepta, which were the smallest coins in circulation, it would take the average day laborer about eight minutes to earn what she put in. And Jesus, you know, you know if you were going by a $15 you know, hour minimum wage, you know, eight minutes, about two bucks. Her, her gift is effectively nothing. But Jesus says her gift was greater than all the other gifts. Now, it's weird because people are really hard on the rich in this section. But Jesus doesn't chastise the wealthy in this section. He doesn't say it's bad that they gave what they gave. He's just saying she gave more than them because after they got done giving, they still had plenty. They weren't hurting. But she gave all that she had to live on. Now, it is, and so. Now this, uh, and so this. Uh, now this is not saying that unless the rich give everything they have, that they are not truly worshiping. That's not what that means. But what it what it does mean is an encouragement uh, to those uh, uh, to those who who have next to nothing. That whatever they give, Jesus can and will take notice of it. He sees it and God will reward it. It means that the smallest gift can be a great act of worship. It's because the widow is giving what she had. But also I want to note that the widow, if she's a widow, that means the temple is the means of her provision. This is a, if you're a widow, then that means that you have no one to rely upon. There's no one coming to help you. There's nobody. And so, and so she's, and so she's putting in what she had, which was very little, um, but she and she's depending upon God, who is providing for her. So, uh, and so this, uh, but this here, we're presented with Jesus says an example of true worship. That true wor- worship is not about the amount that's given, but essentially, what's left over after we're done. And it's a metaphor. Because. Even the wealthy, and by the way, I mean, just to be clear, according to biblical standards and world economic standards today, every one of us in this room is wealthy. Uh, um, Even the wealthy can engage in true worship as we acknowledge all of our life belongs to God. All that we have and all that we are belongs to him. We do not go about making a pretense of religion puffing up our pride by how much we give because we compare it to others. Rather, we seek to grow in holiness before the face of God by confessing our sins, acknowledging our weaknesses, uh, by, uh, by giving glory to Him and, 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 and seeking to live our lives in accordance with His Word in whatever modest way we can for the glory of God. You know, as Jesus said last week, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. and Render unto God what is God's. And what belongs to God is simply all that we are and all that we have. And so in this, Jesus is calling all of us to put everything we have on him. There, uh, uh, it, the, we are to abandon here. Being scribe-like. Making pretenses of religion pretending to be something that we're not, but in repentance and faith to worship the living God in accordance with His mercy and His love. There is an article written about Mr. Rogers when he passed away. It was written in the Atlantic by a reporter, and they made that movie that was based on this relationship that this reporter had with Mr. Rogers. (laughs) Mr. Rogers, if you didn't know, was a Presbyterian minister. <laughs> so um, and so, he had this. Uh, he had this relationship uh, with uh, Mr. Rogers, and, and and they 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 you know they took as Hollywood does. They took some dramatic flair on it. Uh, apparently, in the movie, the, the reporter has a bad relationship with his father. Uh, the real reporter does not have a bad relationship with his father. <laughs> um, but um, uh, it, it's it, it, there's a but this article I cannot read the end of this article without weeping. <laughs> I can't do it. We'll see if I can do it today. <laughs> I'll probably do it today. But they developed such a close relationship over the years that when he passed away and they made the movie, um, he wrote this article, and at the end of the article, he wrote this. He's talking about Mr. Rogers. He said, he gave so much to me, so much trust and friendship without asking me to earn it. But still I wonder whether I have Still I find myself asking for his blessing. Like the aged Private Ryan from the movie Saving Private Ryan as he walks away from the grave of the officer who rescued him, I issue a plea that sounds a bit like a prayer. Tell me me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. And then tell me what to do now. We stand before the living God as not, not as good, righteous men and women, but as redeemed ones, rescued ones, as those who have been redeemed by the son of David, the Lord who is greater than David himself, who is the Messiah, the one who came and who died And His death was in part to cleanse you and I of our scribe-like religious externalism and the half-hearted, insincere worship that we offer. It was to remove from us the heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh that we could feel and receive the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. It was to enable us by the Spirit's power to offer genuine, heartfelt, and sacrificial Worship. But we never forget that our worship, that that sacrifice that we of worship that we give, that sacrifice of praise that we offer it comes for the sake of Christ. It is made acceptable to God by Christ. Because and because it is, and this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, God delights in the worship of his people that he receives from you, from me. The answer to our worship problems isn't some white-knuckled effort to, to become sincere. It is to look to the Son of David, God in the flesh, who came, who died, who lives and rules so that we would live with him in eternal joy and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your goodness, not ours, your goodness, you reveal your love for us. You reveal your patience with us. You... Rejoice in us. There are so many faults in our worship. So many flaws. From its execution to its motivations. Everything from start to finish. But because of the sanctifying grace that we have in Jesus Christ by the Spirit's presence and power, you not only accept our worship, you rejoice in it. Father, may we rejoice then in our Savior. And may we round and round, may we go now and through the rest of our lives and even into eternity rejoicing in You as You rejoice in Your people in a reciprocal, glorious wonder. Father, may You be glorified in Your people this morning. May we wonder and rejoice in our Savior May we abandon any pretense of scribe-like religious externalism. And may we engage in that no-holds-barred, widow-like worship as we lean everything that we have and everything we are upon You. We are Your people. May You bless us as the sheep of Your pasture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.